Our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation 21 and 22, not what's in your bulletin, the different part <laughs> of Revelation 21 and 22. Um, so you can't follow along, but close your eyes um, and hear God's word. This is the word of the Lord. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root of the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, my daughter just turned to me and said, five minutes max. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. <clears throat> I told you I love Advent and Christmas. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but um, when you are a church in its beginning, when you are um, a people who are ostracized and put away, if you're going to have a holiday, if you're going to set days apart, you've got to find the place within a culture to do that. You know, you only get so many days off, right? And so what happened was that um, I'm sure the church uh, thought about this and kind of naturally fell into this. But um, this is the season of Saturnalia. It's a week-long celebration, the days leading up to the winter solstice. And that's when they could get off. During that time in Rome... What they would do, it was a really kind of hedonistic kind of food and drink plentiful kind of place, uh, time. But also what happened, it was the time in which the order, the social order was turned upside down. All slaves were freed during that month. And everyone had to act differently or opposite of the way they were before. All businesses closed down. And on the 25th, not in as many Roman cultures, but certainly ones that were kind of more in the upper class cultures, they would, they would celebrate Mithra on December 25th. Mithor was an ancient Persian god of light, and it was the infant god born from a rock. So they're like, good time for Christmas. Good time to celebrate. It's a world of, of in a world of mythologies, Christians saw Jesus as the true myth that re-narrated the mythologies of the world, of their day, and in which one those mythologies had to give account. Last week we did the tree of life and I was asking you to imagine a life without the curse or the fall or evil, to dream on it, to let it linger in you. And this week we're going to talk about not so much the tree of life, though it is mentioned in our passage, but the gate, the way into that tree of life. And the text concentrates on how one gets in. They, that, uh, that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates, a right to the 
a right to get into the city, into that tree of life. Gates, modern gates, they, they have purposes, but gates mean a whole much more uh, and have a much more, li- a much more life and imagination to them than what we have for ourselves. The gates in the Bible and the book of Revelation are a big deal, um, but the gates of the ancient Near East were, were, were a big deal too. And one of the things that gates were about were about where decisions happened. And the other thing it was is that it was entrance into safety. That's what gates were. By decisions, I mean it's a place where the ideas were debated and the information was disseminated. Uh, the city elders would sit at the gates and hear conflicts among the uh, people. It was um, uh, like a civil court where the adjudicating of disputes happened. Gates were a place where, where there was a judgment made. In some ancient Near Eastern stories, the Sphinx, you know what that is? The Sphinx is this? They have a lion head and they have a, uh, uh, I mean, a, yeah, a human head and a lion body. They would sometimes sit at the gates in, mytholo- in the mythologies of the day and make judgments. The other meaning of gates is much more like ours. It's entrance. If they were closed, you were not to enter. But if they were open, you were welcome in. And when you were welcome in, when the gates were closed, then you were safe behind the city walls. That's what gates were. And John writes in the first part of our passage that in this new heavens and new earth, the gates would never be closed. There would be eternal access. It was, the dates were always, the, the gates were always open by day and it was never night. So let's start with the first part of the gates, this decisions. That's how our passage starts in 12. Behold, I am coming soon, Jesus says, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And then he gives you perspective on his ability to give recompense. And that is, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus is describing himself as the city elder. He describes himself, sees himself, portrays himself as the arbiter, the judge, the one who sees everything from beginning to end. Like most seats of judgment, that's a little nerve-wracking. Seats of judgment are intimidating. And when the judge is God himself, who knows everything from the beginning to end, and when the person entering in is not just for a specific uh, trial, for a specific act, or, but for the whole of your life from beginning to end, that's a little nerve-wracking. Jesus says, in the end, he will be at the gate at the one, and be the one who adjudicates each one of the things that we've done, good or bad. Recompense means something like wage to repay back good or bad. That's very specific. The Bible is full of of kind of uh, communal guilt or communal accountability or communal culpability, but this one is very specific, that it's very much individual here, and that can be scary. I don't know, I don't even know why I saw this or why I remember it, but Steve Harvey has got a new reality TV show where he's the judge. And the opening of it, have you had, seen this yet, this commercial? You, the first thing he says, and it kind of zooms into him, he goes, it's great to be in court when nothing bad can happen to you. I thought that was funnier than you did. Um, <laughs> and of course, the hits the laugh track. But here's the deal, that um, 
it's, it's not really a laughing matter in this passage, at least not right here. It actually does lead to laughing, but not here. I want you to imagine this. What would it be if I was able to tweet every single thought you had this week? I doubt it would go well for many of us. But what if it was worse to somehow to record your life in public and private, the hidden acts that you aren't proud of, the lies you've covered, the hate that you've spewed, all that stuff that you and I share. And let's just say you only had to watch it. It would be unbearable. But what if it was at the city gate? Could anyone stand? I'm sure I would see things that I have stuffed down and don't even remember. May even be surprised that that was actually me. Who could be left standing from such a thing? And yet, there is something in all of us where the goodness and truth of justice for things to be settled is something we desire. Good judges are a great gift, one of the greatest gifts to our societies. They're incredible. So you got to think about the flip side of this too. All the things that have been done to you. All the slights, all the neglect, all the meanness, the abuse, the cruelty, all the lies told about you, all the injury you have held in your body, known and seen. Vindication, finally, from the sins against you. And you hear the words of Jesus himself as Alpha and Omega saying, I saw it. I see you. There will be a day when every person will give account for their lives. And on that day, the only true, fair, impartial, and just magistrate that has ever existed, God himself, will arbitrate that day. He will settle the matter with full clarity of who we are, what we've done, what we've left undone, what's in our hearts. He'll bring it into the light, investigate it, account for it, weigh it, and settle it. And depending on how the outcome of that goes, that is not just terrifying, that can be beautiful. Especially, actually only, if along with that exposure of the wrongs comes a remedy for our entrance into that gate. There are two types of people in our passage today. Those who are, get to go in the gate actually have the right to get into that gate. It's powerful. And those who are left outside, those who do not. And we'll start with the outside. Outside the gate are dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral. That's dogs as a metaphor, just in case. We all know all dogs go to heaven. Um, <laughs> dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, and idolaters. And get this one, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It was common back in the day to be 
excluded or barred from entry. Usually it was kind of epidemiological, like if there was a disease or something that was going around, they'd keep people from the gates to not infect the entire town. Um, but if you were known as like a murderous bandit, they wouldn't let you in either. Um, uh, so that makes sense. But all these are very much moral categories. I mean, dogs just means having a reputation of being depraved. Sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, and idolaters are pretty self-explanatory. But that one, that last swath is pretty large. Those who love and practice falsehood. So how does somebody get inside the gate? How do you get in there? And Jesus answers with this. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Clean robes, that's how you get in. That they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gate. Robe washing. In the ancient Near East, priests in Jerusalem, the persons hearing this, would know of what a robe was and what it meant and that it needed to be clean. The priests in the temples of Isis, Apollo, and Artemis wore white robes. The standard celebrants and cult festivals uh, for the emperor would have to have clean robes. They are symbols of purity, which is an amazing thing because the irony here is that in those cultic practices, what happened with those white robes, which were a symbol of purity, was all sorts of participation in debauchery. Sexual immorality, idolatry. In John's day, the, the Roman imperial cult, which was just the state religion, included sorcery and murdering of Christians. But you had to have a white robe. You've got to love again how the, the scriptures and how Christianity itself and how the word of God comes to, to, to uh, reform and redefend, upend and redefine the very myths of our world. Replacing the cultural myth with the true myth of Jesus so how do these robes get washed for us? The passage is actually referring back to another place in, in, in Revelation. I told you Revelation kind of works like a, a montage and has these images here and there, and sometimes they recycle through and recycle through all the way through the book. And so it, re, it harkens back to several different other like images like that, montage clips, if you will. And it says this, that those inside the gates, the people of God, washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the lamb made them white. It's an image that Jesus' death, his shed blood, purifies the stain of sin on our robes. I don't want you to run over that, especially if you've been in church world for a while. I want you to hear that. Jesus' blood cleanses it makes our robes clean. And in so doing, the recompense, the pay, for our sins is borne by Jesus. This is the great exchange where he takes on our sin and then clothes us with his righteousness. This is a metaphor all over scripture. Jesus is the gatekeeper, but he also the gate is his broken body, actually better, the gate is his once broken body, but now resurrected from the dead that opens the way up to enter in. And now we are called blessed, blessed who wash their robes, because they have the right to enter in. Not the, 
if you're thinking about it, or if you like the semi-right, or the, I mean, the, the verdict is done. The work is done. So you have the absolute right. Anything else is double jeopardy, if you will. And you think about it, standing there with each one of our deeds before us, there would be a temptation to, to kind of muster up like, well, let me tell you everything good that I did too so we can get that pay right. Or the other one would be utter despair because there is no way I can even lift my head in this. But both of those, this, this gate gives us an image of where both of those can be taken care of because it, it fights against these lives. The gospel of grace does that fighting. It tells us that we can own all of our sin because Jesus has cleansed us from it because of his grace. And it also says, hey, you meriting salvation was off the table from the, this has all been grace from the get-go. Me bringing a heaven to bear, I mean, that's just goodness. That's just grace. You couldn't have done that anyway. I didn't have to do any of it. There's a funny story, and obviously there's some theological issues with it, but an old man dies, good, holy, wonderful man, he dies, and he's facing the angel Gabriel at heaven's gates. This is where it gets theologically wonky, but the angel says, okay, here's how this thing works. What we're going to do is, well, here, here's what needs to happen. You need to get 100 points before you can get in. So you're going to tell me about your life, and then I'm going to give you some points. And this is how it's going to happen. He goes, oh, okay. Man said, all right. I was married to the same woman faithfully for 50 years. Never, never betrayed her, not even in my heart. And Gabriel was like, that is awesome. Three points. <laughs> Three points, the guy said incredulously. Well, I attended church all my life and supported its ministry with money and service and time, sacrificial love. Terrific, Gabriel said. Two points. Man was beginning to panic a little bit. Well, how about this? I worked for Shalom, for justice and mercy and peace in our city. I opened a shelter for the homeless in the city. I fed hundreds and hundreds of people all throughout the year. Fantastic, says Gabriel. Three more points. And he goes, at this rate, I'll never get in on my own. I guess I'll need God's grace. And Gabriel said, a hundred points. Come on in. It's not that our work in the world doesn't matter. It just doesn't merit. It matters greatly. It matters because of God's grace to us. It matters because we have to participate in the good life that he's given us to love and serve him and live in the world as he has directed. It matters. It's just merit is off the table. You can't merit heaven. You can't merit God's kindness. The city beyond the gates is a gift. You can't gain it by your merit. thinking about the myths of our world for those of you who are like studying world history or the classics Oedipus Rex Sophocles the Sphinx there is named Fix so Fix is a Sphinx need another X in there somehow in Rex Fix is a Sphinx 
he was, she was either set by, sent by Hera, depending on the story, or Apollo to bring judgment to bear uh, in the city. And she used to stretch upon a rock at the entrance of the city gate. And uh, regardless, um, well, then she would begin to kind of wreak havoc for travelers that would come in at the gate. And she would make you have, like, she would give you a riddle. And her famous riddle was what goes on four feet in the morning, two feet at noon, and three feet at night. I see the whispering. I know that these people have been reading it. Um, and if the traveler could not answer, she would bring judgment by pushing the traveler off the cliff to their death or eating them. And then Oedipus comes by and answers the riddle. What goes on four legs in the morning, two at noon, and three at night? Humans. In the morning of his years, he crawls on all fours. In the noontime of his life, the middle years, he walks on two feet. And at the end of the years, he walks upon two legs and a cane, three legs, as his night draws near. Oedipus, of course, wins the victory of Bear and is able to establish, well, Oedipus is a complicated tale, but things go good, but then go really, 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 really bad. But in the, in the moment that that happens, the Sphinx actually, in the perfect Sphinxian melodrama, throws herself off the cliff to her own death because of her shame. Think about the difference. Like, it's the actual myth that was really involved in the life and culture of the day. It was actually rewritten again uh, in the five or four hundreds, uh, another Oedipus ta tale like this. So this is in the memory of the people that he's actually writing to, right? Think about the difference of this. In the myths of the world, in the myths of God, the true myth of God, both are gatekeepers. But one of them's job was just to keep out while the other one's job was to make a way in. Both set up as, as somewhat God's messengers or, or, or living out God's mission. But one smugly wreaks havoc on the city, while the other one weeps over the brokenness of the city as we find out in the Gospels. Both bring judgment, which is good. But in the myths of the world, it always is about your cleverness and your ability to solve the riddle. But in the kingdom of God, the gate is based on the judge himself providing the way out, the escape. Both judges end up dying, one in their own shame and embarrassment and ridiculousness, the other one out of love and sacrifice for the ones he wants to welcome in. In one, the God devours, and in the other, he sets a feast for us, and we actually eat on him feed on God. The passage ends. The spirit and the bride say, come. Come to this gatekeeper. Come to the Alpha and Omega. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. What a glorious true myth we believe. Amen.